Chapter 2 Life without Jim took on a strange hue, but perhaps it was to be expected, as it had been six years since Spock had been anything other than the first half of the entity known as Spock and Jim. He found himself less tolerant of his classes, and by the end of the first month, Sarek had suggested that Spock reaffirm his commitment to the Vulcan principles, and pursue his meditation more aggressively. It afforded him some peace, but lulled him into a false sense of security, a fact made abundantly clear when on April 24th he received a call from an unknown number. He tilted his head. His private line was exclusive, and very few outside his family had it, and then pressed accept. Immediately, he flinched back at the roar of sound and the high, whining assault of, well, perhaps it was music. He looked again at the number, and then hazarded, Jim? Spock! Spock! This car is awesome! Jim's voice shouted over the din. Spock hesitated and said dubiously, Eleven-year-olds can drive in Iowa? Don't be a dumbass, Spock. Shit, wait, hang on. There was a few vaguely mechanical sounds, and then the protesting scream of metal being forced to do something. Spock was not a technician, but he was also not an idiot. No vehicle should make that sound. Spock, who had been headed downstairs, handheld pressed between his cheek and shoulder, stopped on the second floor landing, feeling abruptly apprehensive more apprehensive. Jim? No, we're cool. The top just kind of flew, ripped off, but it's okay. The truly remarkable thing about Jim was that he could say things like that and believe that it was in any way reassuring. Terrans, Spock had found, put too much stock in the word okay. One day Spock would write the book. Jim, what are you doing? He asked, keeping his voice even. This car is an antique, Jim told him nonsensically, and then laughed. He's going to be so pissed. Who? Jim, pull over. Spock's hand was beginning to dent into the wood of the banister, and he forced his heart rate to steady. Nah, come on, we're going to... Spock, you think we could fly? Hey, Johnny! Spock heard the wood start to splinter, recognized that he was exerting influence on an inanimate object in order to supplement his lack of control over Jim, and squeezed harder. Jim, pull the car over. He kicked Sam out! Jim shouted abruptly, angry and combative. Spock hated this, that Jim seemed to start arguments without Spock, and then got angry when Spock was unable to keep up with all the facts. Come to think, Spock hated a lot of things about Jim. Currently, the fact that Spock could barely breathe for fear, and Jim sounded on the verge of laughter. A logical decision, then, to crash a car in retaliation. Spock shot back, and then tilted his head. Yes, those were sirens he was hearing. Spock wondered if Jim's stepfather alerted the authorities to the stolen car, or if an officer was pursuing Jim to the no-doubt extensive number of traffic violations he was committing. Either was entirely plausible. Well, he likes this car, Spock. I mean, he really likes this car. Lots. Something about Jim's tone suggested the fondness might be sexual. Spock had always assumed that was a cruel stereotype about the Terran male. Perhaps not. In the background, a slightly mechanical voice commanded, Citizen, pull over. There was a crash after that, but the car was still running, and Jim was screaming in something like pure adrenaline and joy, and Spock thought, I am going to listen to him die. Jim, he said, with no real hope of being heard over the music and Jim's yelling as he closed his eyes, Jim, jump. There was a squeal of tires and a quick succession of crunching sounds, and Spock stood and listened as the shouting faded his ears burning with the pressure with which he was holding the handset to his head, and then there was a crash, 
loud and horrific and visceral, knocking the breath from him, staggering him back. Spock? Amanda said, hurrying up the stairs. Sweetheart, what? He didn't jump. He told her numbly, pulling the handset away and staring at it. Who didn't jump? Who's on the phone? She asked, reaching to take it from him. He jerked it back. It was illogical, as he was hardly going to hear anything further. The transmission had terminated when the car no doubt went up in flames, but he could not bring himself to disconnect his end. Jim. He. His stepfather evicted his older brother from the residence, and Jim took it poorly and stole his stepfather's antique car and... drove it off a cliff. Spock had not even been aware that Iowa had cliffs. He looked up at her, feeling numb, and was gratified to see the horror in her face. The immediate grief she felt for a boy she forbade Spock to play with years ago, whom she had never truly liked. Oh, Spock, she murmured, folding him into her arms. I'm so sorry. He let her take the handset from him then, and disconnected the line, but he found the contact suffocating and disentangled from her. Spock, she started, but he took the stairs to his room quickly and shut his door before he could hear the rest, sitting on the bed with his hands on his knees, as he tried to meditate, to concentrate, to clear his mind. His father came in after, fifteen minutes of unsuccessful attempts at being calm. He wanted to throw things. He wanted to go to Iowa and yell at Sam, at Jim's stepfather, at the officer who did not cut the chase short. He wanted to find Jim and kill him, which was impossible, as Jim was dead. Jim was dead. Spock was going to vomit. Grief is the most difficult of emotions to manage, Sarek observed. Spock looked up at him. You must accept it, meditate upon it. Spock's phone rang. They both looked at the ID, and if Sarek was perturbed that Riverside County Police Station was calling his son, Spock was unable to tell. As it was, he was too busy snatching up the handset and saying, You jumped. Of course I jumped. Jim scoffed, like Spock was an idiot for thinking otherwise. You weren't going to, Spock pointed out evenly, watching his father close the door behind him before standing up and grabbing his satchel, putting his pad and his ident card into it. Fuck you, Jim snapped, and Spock grit his teeth and reminded himself he was glad that Jim had survived, that this rage was not directed at him personally. Spock was simply the nearest available target. Why are you in jail? Spock asked, pulling his pad back out and looking up incarceration laws in Iowa. He was fairly certain that, as a minor, Jim was not to be held indefinitely. Surely Earth was not so backwater as that, though sometimes he was forced to wonder. My stepdad wants me charged with grand theft auto, destruction of property, and reckless endangerment, plus all the driving stuff. Jim's tone had shifted from anger, abruptly, into something fearless and strangely amused. Like this was a joke, and Jim was waiting for the rest of them to understand. You are guilty of those things, and more. Spock pointed out. Whose side are you on? Jim demanded. Anyway, I guess they didn't know what to do with me. There's like a social worker and shit, so we'll probably have to do family counseling or something. He is not kicking you out? No, can't torture me if I don't live there, Jim said, and then the line went dead. I am going to kill him, Spock informed the room serenely. Upon reflection later, Spock would assume that the only reason his parents had not thought to forbid him from going to Jim that night had been their complete shock, that and that Spock had never gone anywhere not escorted by one or both of his parents. 
So the idea that Spock would slip out the window and take public transport, first class because Spock was angry, but he was hardly going to be uncomfortable, to Riverside, Iowa, that idea never occurred to his parents. He spent the four-hour trip researching bail and laws pertaining to the miners in the district Jim was being held, trying to estimate how much would be needed to procure his release, and wondering if he would have to call Cybok to lend him funds. He imagined Cybok would enjoy the conversation, would say that this was Spock embracing his Terran cultural roots. Spock would also never hear the end of it. He pulled up his account information. He had several thousand at his disposal, and though surely that would be sufficient, according to the literature available, he was given to understanding he would get the money back when Jim appeared at his court date. Of course, Spock would probably have to stay in town to ensure Jim appeared in court, but he could do that. There was no one else in the shuttle, and the two attendants were sitting in the front row, legs splayed in front of them, and talking, obviously tired, both Terran, Spock thought, and watched the way they interacted to try to distract himself from his concerns. It was illogical, perhaps, to be apprehensive, but it seemed equally illogical not to accept the severity of the situation Jim could find himself in. There was also the slow, steady burn of anger, but Spock had deliberately put that aside. When they arrived at the dock station, there was a taxi waiting to take him to the destination of his choosing, and the man behind the wheel barely blinked when Spock told him he would like the police station. Surely it must be unusual. People coming out of town, at twenty hundred, and asked to be taken to the jail. Perhaps Riverside's criminal element is greater than Spock had previously anticipated. The police station was in an old building, with several more modern additions, no doubt recently expanded on due to a population surge caused by the jobs brought to the area by Starfleet. The woman at the desk looked at him and raised her eyebrow. "'Can I help you, son?' she asked, looking a bit apprehensive, as though wondering what one did with misplaced Vulcan children. "'I am here for James Tiberius Kirk,' he said, and she lifted her eyebrows even further. "'I can pay his bail,' Spock added, holding up his bank card between his fingers. "'No bail,' she said after a moment's hesitation. "'Just needed someone to come pick him up. Wait here. I'll go get him.' She stood up and paused a little, looking at him curiously but then went to fetch Jim while muttering something about knowing that boy was just like his mama, honest to God. Spock stood in the empty room, ignoring the curious gaze of the other officer on duty, and wondering why she would release Jim into the custody of another minor. Perhaps the woman was unfamiliar with Vulcans and assumed him older. He heard Jim before he saw him, telling the officer that parting was such sweet sorrow. His blue eyes were limpid when he came into view, and she was trying very hard not to laugh at him as she pushed him at Spock, who noticed Jim's hands were bandaged across the palms and raw at the knuckles. His lip was cut and he was absolutely filthy, but he was alive. It took him several seconds to notice Spock, and when he did, it was with gratifying shock. Spock, Jim said in surprise. Spock turned on his heel and walked, because if he assaulted Jim in the presence of an officer, he was likely to get arrested or detained, and his mother might cry. Additionally, he doubted Jim had sufficient funds to engineer Spock's release, and having Spock in jail for assault, and Jim in jail for grand theft, was not the purpose of the visit. So Spock waited until they were sufficiently out of range of the reach of the law, turning down the long stretch of road, covered by dirt. Jim seemed not to quite know what to say, kept on drawing in quick breaths, as though to say something, and then exhaling in frustration. They walked for a mile and a half, like that, until Spock stopped and looked at him in the dim light the moon provided. 
Then I punched him in the face. Vulcans were much stronger than Terrans, explained by stronger gravity on Vulcan. So when Jim went down, he went down hard. What the hell? He screamed up at Spock, shoving off the pavement to rush Spock, who ducked and grabbed his wrists, gripping too tightly and tucking his heel into the back of Jim's knee, following him down and pinning him solidly. He straddled him like he had when they were small, half their lives ago. I could ask you the same, Spock snarled. You made me listen to that and expected me to what? Not be upset? Anger isn't logical, Jim sneered, pressing into Spock's hold with his entire body, writhing like some sort of sea creature. I am finding it most logical, Spock assured him. What if I had not picked up? What if I had not thought to tell you the obvious, that you should jump? I don't know, Jim yelled, and it was the truth, and startling enough that Jim let him go. Jim shoved him off, and Spock hit the pavement hard, staring at him. Jim. I don't know, Jim repeated, angry and cut out, and Spock did not know what, what to do, what he should do. Jim was angry, but Jim was always angry, full of rage and impossible, but it was like the breath of Riverside could not contain him, like it made him worse. Lack of stimulation, Spock thought, isolation, and there were no adults, no one Spock could go to. Sam had been four years older was fifteen and hardly an adult figure to Jim. Jim's mother was dead, his father was dead, and his stepfather was hateful. Spock's life was rife with adults who had opinions about how he ought to conduct his life. It was staggering, always, to remember that Jim had no one but Spock. Suicide is not the answer, Spock told him, and Jim huffed a laugh, hugging his knees and resting his bruised cheek on them. Neither is larceny, grand theft, disorderly contact or destruction of property, he added, because it needed to be said, for all the good it would do. He had the sinking feeling that in years to come, he would need to repeat this and expand upon the list. It would undoubtedly need to be written down, possibly in triplicate. Jim laughed again, knocking his shoulder into Spock's knee. Headlights came into view, and Spock stood and pulled Jim up on off the road. It is very late, Spock said and my parents will doubtless panic when they have discovered I have run from home to attend to a small psychopath. I have the test to prove that I'm not, Jim told him, and Spock believed him, but also knew Jim could cheat whatever test he put his mind to. He reached out as the light grew stronger, and touched Jim's bloodied lip with something like regret. Jim watched him quietly. It sucks here, he told Spock finally, after the vehicle had passed and they were plunged back into dark. But you should go back before you get in trouble. Spock had never been in trouble with his parents before. Not really. He wondered what it would look like. They walked silently back to the station, where Spock presented his return ticket to the man behind the counter. Jim sat beside him while they waited, hand wrapped around Spock's wrist tightly. Spock turned to him as he was getting ready to board. Do not do this just so I will come, he said severely, because some part of him thought that maybe that was what this was. He was teasing, but then he was not. Not at all. There are other ways of telling me you miss me. In your dreams, Jim told him, grinning and splitting his lip again, careless and alive, and Spock wanted to grab him, bring him home and hide him in one of the rooms of the embassy that they never used, keep him close and watch him, and maybe keep him safe if such a thing were possible. Instead, he allowed the attendant to help him into the shuttle and sat by the window, watched as Jim grew to a speck of nothing watching Spock disappear with nothing like regret or longing on his face. 
just watching, as though this was the normal course of things, that Jim should be left. He had no way of knowing if they had resolved anything, fixed things, or if Spock had made Jim see any kind of sense. He thought they were better. He doubted sincerely that this would be the last time he would make late-night trips to Riverside. But maybe they were better. The intake officer seemed fond of you. Spock sent, as the western half of the United States flew by his window. If you were in trouble, and four hours was too long, she might listen. There is pause long enough for Spock to get an uncomfortable feeling in his stomach, and then... Older woman would be a challenge. Jim. I look like a domestic abuse PSA. You are lucky not to look like a corpse. Would you grieve for me? Spock stared down at the pad. Do not give me cause. Yeah. Spock leaned his head against the cool window and wondered, not for the first time, what he was doing. Spock's parents seemed to be genuinely unaware of his late-night trip to Iowa until they got the bank statement a month later. By that time, Spock was already over the entire thing, moved past it, and focused back on school, on the upcoming break for summer, and warily watching as the building blocks for explosives go missing in small quantities from the Riverside shipyard. Spock was fairly certain Jim would not give in to his homicidal tendencies and wipe Riverside from the map, but at the same time he was not entirely confident that no one would provoke Jim. He was also fairly certain that Jim was doing it to see if he could, without true intent. In any event, he estimated that he had until school was out before he had to be seriously concerned, but sent a message off anyway. Do not for a second presume that I am ignorant of what you are doing. Fuck off, Spock, came the swift reply. At the bottom, there was a short bit of a space station exploding in horrific fashion. Spock narrowed his eyes and hacked the Riverside shipyard security, elevating the security on the last three ingredients Jim would need. Jim could get around it, because Jim had taught Spock to hack, but he would be irritated. You worry me constantly. I get that a lot. Then stop. Can't. Too bored. Blowing things up is never an answer. Spock words to live by. I suggest you take note. Spock turned back to his homework, and then looked at his mother when she came in, holding a slender tablet. Spock, did you go to Riverside a month ago? She asked. The, the night that? Yes, Spock said. She looked at him and sat in his bed smoothing her skirts. Why? He was in holding and required liberation. You want to liberate him? He was not charged with anything. Spock, she sighed, scrubbing her face with her hand. I, I appreciate that you're friends with him, that you feel an, an obligation. He is my friend, he said, and thought that as a human his mother should understand this. Okay, she said taking his hand in both of her small ones. They were nearly of a height, he was startled to realize. Spock, I'm concerned about. I understand that he's your friend, but you need to stop the sneaking around, and you need to ask one of us before you can use your bank card. You're twelve and still a child. He nodded. I apologize if I caused you concern. Amanda tilted her head and looked at him quietly, studying his face and lingering as though she was just noticing differences. Spock sat quietly, waiting for her to finish. 
She sighed and kissed his forehead. Ambassador Rasha is coming over, and she'll be bringing her son, his mother informed him. Please be downstairs in an hour. Spock stared at his door, and then pulled up his pad. My mother is inviting children over. Enjoy your date. Spock did not, in fact, enjoy his date. Eric Rasha had a draw so thick as to be nearly incomprehensible, and he seemed to value himself very highly with very little reason to do so. After Eric had departed with his father, Amanda asked Spock if he liked Eric, if she should invite them back. When he had responded that he would rather be alone, she had to interrogate him on Eric's faults. He suspected her taking avid mental notes. Next Friday, Amelia Sopoth came with her parents to dinner. The following Friday, it was the Gelish Thaw twins. Spock took to writing two reports, an unfiltered, unkind version he sent to Jim, and a more appropriately edited version which he submitted to his parents. His mother was undeterred. The following Friday, it was Valiska Misok. That Sunday, there was a get-together where the children were pushed together, and Spock, in a desperate bid to save his sanity, spent the entire time talking to Jim. They were unintelligent, uninformed, unimaginative, and, two a one, more interested in the hierarchy of the room's inhabitants than they were in any kind of conversation. And while Spock strived to be polite on a one-on-one -on -one basis, he could not be compelled to do so now. It's not really their fault, Jim said over the line. I mean, their parents are dumb, so it stands to reason. Stupidity can be hereditary, and if you take it in the nurture argument, too, like, they're just doomed, Spock, doomed to be idiots. Can we talk about the fact that you're like the prince and these are all your suitors? Because you do realize this is like Cinderella's prince ball. Spock! Spock! Do you see Cinderella? You are enjoying this far too much, Spock informs him, scanning the room in spite of himself. Rio Galishtha is wearing a very large ensemble. With translucent shoes? Jim presses, sounding like he was going to hurt himself in an attempt to keep from laughing. Spock looked and then looked away, because under no circumstances was he going to answer that question. He does, doesn't he? Jim asks, laughing out right now. Spock, I'm so proud. It's your happily ever after come true. I find you hateful, Spock informs him, and Jim laughed again, bright this time. If anyone asked you to dance, Spock, I'd run, Jim advises, and don't return any footwear. No one asks him to dance, and his mother stopped trying to force him into socializing. He thought that would be the end of it, that she would realize he had no interest in his so-called peers, and the way he had no interest in his classmates, and that this would stop. In a way, it was the end of it. She just watched him sadly, constantly concerned, and he had no way to explain to her that he was fine. He did well on his own, and the social group left behind by Jim was still partially Spock's peer group. They ate lunch together and talked and defaulted to each other when it came to partnering or group projects. At home, he had his parents, and Jim was rarely more than a text or call away. Some days, he could even be persuaded to stay still long enough for a vid call. He had found an equilibrium, and he thought, perhaps foolishly, that all parties would be satisfied, if not happy. However, three days before his thirteenth birthday, when San Francisco's weather was roiling and the thunder was crackling above his head, Spock slid from the bedroom to get something to drink and was brought up by the sound of his parents arguing. It was hardly a new thing, his parents' discordance. His mother assured him it was healthy, that Terrence enjoyed yelling. Spock's own interactions with Jim had demonstrated this to be true, as well as his own inclination to reprimand Jim in less than civil tones. 
His father had tried to explain that sometimes, because they lacked emotional control, Karens were irrational and given to screaming without thought. It would have held more weight if Spock hadn't known that Sarek was watching the door carefully for a hint of Amanda, wary of being overheard. "'He has no friends!' his mother was saying, and Spock's respect for his parents' privacy warred with the knowledge that they were speaking of him. Cybok had many friends, and there was a particular tone parents used when speaking of their children. "'He has very few peers,' Sarek replied even. Were we on Vulcan, he would be surrounded by his cultural and intellectual peers, and might form bonds of companionship. On Earth, he is scarcely challenged by his teachers, never mind his peers. Right. Well, I'm so sorry that my job keeps us here when it's so bad for our son. Amanda snapped. Oh, wait. No. No. I'm not, because this is your job keeping us here, and if you try to turn this around on me again, Sarek, I will end you. Sarcasm is not helpful at this. You're really aiming for the couch tonight. Amanda interrupted. Look, fine, he's not interested in his peers. You can make that argument, except that he's all twisted around this Kirk kid, which, God, it's not that I don't feel bad for him, and I don't want to visit the sins of the parents on the child, but this kid, Sarek, someday we're going to turn on the news, and he's going to have taken out an entire star system, and Spock will go bail him out, and look at us like we're monsters when we try to stop him. Spock's hands curled into fists, listening, even when his soldiers lay dying. Scattered across an imagined war zone, Jim had hated them for it. Jim was reckless and stupid, but only with himself. He was self-destructive, not homicidal. Spock knew him. And if Jim, well, Spock was there, it would never get to that point. It is illogical to draw conjectures, Sarek tried, only to be interrupted again. Spock thought he was dead. Jim called him and then drove off a cliff, Sarek. And then Spock went to go see him and didn't tell us. I'm not comfortable with... with any of this. But Spock is so militantly against even giving these children a chance. He just calls Jim and they're in their own little world, and... Spock left then, not wanting to hear if logic or instinct prevailed. Sometimes, he felt, the two were mutually exclusive. He understood his mother's apprehension. After all, he was the one who had been punched in the chin and sat on and forced to give up state secrets in the tucked-away corners of the park and he was the one who listened to Jim yell in pure happiness as he headed for a cliff, the one whose wrists ached from being gripped too tightly. But he was also the one who was boarding a late-night shuttle again, and one of the attendants smiled at him in recognition as he settled down. It was foolish, perhaps, but Spock was... knocking on Kirk's front door. "'What are you doing here?' Jim asked, frowning at him when he opened the door to see Spock on the porch. "'My parents are fighting,' Spock said." Or they were for hours ago. My stepdad's asleep, Jim said, gesturing to a room to their left that glowed blue with muted voices coming from the holovid. Passed out, really, but who's keeping track? You have a scoreboard, undoubtedly, Spock replied, and Jim grinned at him, just a sharp little thing. Maybe. The house was large, if ill cared for. The floor was dirty, and there were dishes visible on the dining room table. It seemed impossible that people lived here. There was nothing alive about it, and it had the hallmark of neglect and abandonment. Jim led him up the old stairs and down a hallway, with faded rugs that might, once, have been centered but were now skewed and shoved against walls. They went into the room at the very end of the hall and Spock looked around. He had never seen Jim's room in San Francisco, but he imagined it had been strewn with discarded toy soldiers and Starfleet recruiting posters, toys and the books and bits of computer stuff. 
This room had bare walls, and a large window overlooking what appeared to be endless fields of some vegetation Spock was unable to identify at first glance. The bed was shoved into a corner, sheets and blankets twisted into a rope, and the bottom sheet hanging on by only one corner at the top. There was a bathroom attached, but beyond that, I never really unpacked, Jim admitted, looking at the ten boxes stacked neatly in the far corner. There were bookshelves to be filled, and a bureau devoid of clothing, a closet with nothing in it, and a chest at the foot of the bed that was, unsurprisingly, empty. That seems stupid, Spock told him, and before Jim could start complaining, Spock pulled open the top of the first box and peered in. Take a box, Jim. You're such a fucking pain in the ass, Jim told him, coming over and this light Spock could see the way his hands were still shiny new, pink crisscrossed with white battle scars. Spock had not studied them six months ago. It seemed far longer. That one should be fine, Spock replied blithely, directing him to a box, and they unpacked in silence. It was not uncomfortable or charged like the silence that was undoubtedly reigning in Spock's home, but neither was it the comfortable silences Spock had shared with Cybok. It was something new, not yet quantified, it was a gym silence, whatever that meant. Eventually Jim grew tired, or bored, and he fell onto the top of the sheets and blankets, rustled them into something that resembled a bed, shut his eyes, and in a manner of seconds was asleep. He had dark circles under his eyes, and Spock contemplating telling him to get up, to finish helping him unpack, because Spock was a guest in his home, and Jim's manners were appalling, but decided against it. Setting up the room was mindless and straightforward, and the monotony of it almost comforting. Additionally, the knowledge that Jim was going to be cursing him for months to come, when he was unable to find something, gave Spock a deep sense of satisfaction. But then he was done, and still very much awake. The room, the house, was suddenly claustrophobic. He crept from the room and gently down the stairs, though it seemed Frank had gone to bed as there was nothing playing in the viewing room anymore. He slipped out the door and off the porch, down the steps to the stone walkway, carefully within hearing range should something happen. He did not know what he expected, only that he expected something. Everything seemed worse somehow, or amplified by the isolation of the farmhouse. He resolved to find Jim's stockpile of near explosives and liberate them from him. In the dark of the night, it seemed so much more ominous. The sky was dark over his head, darker than it was in San Francisco, something reminiscent of the quiet on Vulcan. He thought if it was a clear night, he would be able to look up and see all the stars. But it was overcast, with little droplets of rain falling on his arms and face. Not quite raining, but it would soon. He was sure of it. In the distance, lightning flickered too far away to be anything more than impressions of light. There and gone again. He disliked it for reasons he could not explain. Even to himself. Where he had liked the open space of Vulcan that seemed forever untamed, he disliked the fields of Riverside. Something about Vulcan always hinted that something more was to be found, that a boy who stumbled into her deserts could happen upon some secret that none before him had gleamed. Riverside felt as though all her secrets had been bled and stripped from her, and now she was simply allowing those who lived off her to defile the corpse she'd left behind. Riverside felt as though she had already been conquered, and the restless itch that had settled into his skin as the rain dripped off spoke to his unease, to the feeling that this place was wrong. Objectively, he supposed, that those who lived here must like it, must not feel that way. Jim's parents grew up here, and while they left, his grandparents lived here. And this day and age, there was no reason for people to stay where they were born if they disliked it. 
Perhaps it was transference, his own dislike of the place a mere byproduct of his acquaintance with Jim. You're getting wet, Jim told him from the porch. Didn't anyone ever teach Vulcans to come out of the rain? It will dry, Spock said, not turning around, though he became aware that his skin was prickling with something more akin to chill than restlessness. Not if you stay in it, moron, Jim argued, because at the end of all things there will be Jim Kirk arguing. Is this a new habit of yours? Spock wondered, stating the obvious. Fuck you. Ah, profanity. The level of discourse continues to rise. Yeah, you're talking, but all I hear is, I'm a fucking moron who doesn't come out of the rain, Jim replied. Seriously, can you not see that you're shivering? A curious sensation. He listened to the sound of the stairs creaking wetly as Jim came down them, the soft sound of bare feet sliding through grass and over stone, and then Jim was there, eyebrow lifted, hand shoving at Spock's chest, in the house, dumbass. He let Jim give him Sam's clothes and shoved him into a shower which shrieked at him. He heard Frank's door open, but could not make out what was said over the sound of the faulty heating system. He wondered why Jim had not fixed the piping, as he pulled on the flannel pants and the thin cotton shirt, folding the cuffs of the sleeves back so they did not hang over his fingers, which, if you remembered correctly, was Sam Kirk's favorite way of wearing his shirt sleeves. He found Jim in bed, but there was enough space left so as to be deliberate, and Spock fit himself into it. I hate it here, Jim told him. I know, Spock agreed, and he wanted to hold Jim, offer some sort of comfort. It was novel. He had never been particularly empathetic, much to Slybock and his mother's chagrin. Tell me about your parents' fight, Jim said, fastening a hand onto Spock's wrist after Spock wrapped an arm around him. They worry I am lonely. My mother worries that I am compromised, that my judgment is impaired by affection or loyalty. Your mom doesn't like me. My mother is concerned you are a bad influence. It must be a frightening thing as a parent to see your child willfully select influences which have a high probability of leading him into trouble. You've ran here twice, Jim reminds him. It's kind of possible I'm the worst influence in the history of influences. There was also the theft, Spock reminded him, and Jim laughed. Yeah, there was that. What were you going to do with it? Spock asked, because he had wondered had wondered if Jim had watched the car and thought to take it for his own, if he had thought he would keep driving until he hit an ocean, if he had contemplated heading to San Francisco, or perhaps the plan all along had been suicidal. Nothing, just seeing if I could do it, Jim said, and his grip on Spock's wrist shifted slightly, just holding on. Try to rein in that impulse, Spock suggested, and Jim laughed. Eventually they fell asleep, Jim tucked between Spock and the wall. He woke up the next morning with Jim's face in his armpit and one of his legs thrown over Jim's hip. Jim's fingers were digging into Spock's side so hard he was sure he would have bruises upon inspection, and he looked at the ceiling, wondering how to extricate himself exactly. The sound of Spock's calm going off saved them, jerking Jim from sleep to wakefulness in the space of a breath, detangling from Spock with enviable ease and on his feet. My parents, Spock said, and Jim relaxed a little. Spock wondered what he had thought the sound was. From the reaction he would have had to expect a bomb of some sort, which frankly required further investigation. Spock got up and fished the calm out of his jacket pocket. Spock, what is your present location? 17th Arcadia Street, Riverside, Iowa, he replied, glancing over the sound of the bathroom door closing. Spock, your mother was very concerned. 
I left a note, Spock pointed out, sitting on Jim's thin mattress. She did not believe it to be sufficient. Sarah informed him, I shall come to collect you. Please be ready for my arrival in an hour. Yes, father, Spock agreed, keeping his voice clear of the thought that going back was not what he wanted to do. Not at all, really. They coming to get you? Jim asked, toweling his hair dry, jeans and faded t-shirt advertising McKee's garage on it. My father will be here in an hour. Fast. He is undoubtedly taking a private mode of transportation. They mad? My father does not get angry. It is an emotion unbefitting a Vulcan. Jim thought about that then. So he's, like, disappointed that you didn't act like a Vulcan? Most likely, Spock agreed. My father thinks my life will be easier if I follow the Vulcan way. My mother will be supportive no matter what decision I make, but she will not necessarily be pleased. Do Vulcans play? Jim asked, pulling open drawers, searching for something, but too proud to ask for help, even in something so trivial. He finally found the Starfleet figurines and held up the box, grinning at Spock and shaking it. Because that would suck if they didn't. I would not say what you do is playing, Spock pointed out. It is more of a genocide. But pretend so it counts as playing, Jim said, dumping them on the floor and sitting cross-legged. Spock watched for a moment as Jim set up the figures. Where did you crash? he asked. Over at the launch site, Jim said, not looking up. They named it after my parents, Kirk Shipyard. Part of Spock wanted to see, to know where, but he sat instead, sat and picked up a small ship and let Jim dictate the game to him, watched an entire universe unfold in the small bedroom, full of villains and heroes, and when the doorbell rang, it startled them both. That will be my father, Spock said unnecessarily. I think you need to practice, Jim said, surveying the floor of his room. Your worst strategy is lacking. My... Your rules are nonsensical, Spock said, and Jim grinned. You want me to go down with you? Spock looked at Jim, tried to see him as his father would, a small Terran boy with too long hair and ill-fitting clothes, obviously poor and uncared for, irrational and illogical with none of Amanda Grayson's redeeming characteristics. Yes, Spock said, and Jim nodded and walked him downstairs to face Frank, standing at the door and holding it ajar staring at Sarek with a slightly combative air. Jim squeezed Spock's wrist once and let go, standing on the last step and leaving it to Spock to cross to his father's side. Sarek put a heavy hand on Spock's shoulder and guided him outside after thanking Frank for his hospitality. Sarek was somber and disappointed and concerned and showed none of that on his face as he escorted Spock to the shuttle, but Spock could feel it coming off his father through their contact. You heard the disagreement your mother and I had he observed, as Spock buckled himself in. Spock wondered if this was a Vulcan trait, stating the obvious. Perhaps it was just one of his father's less appealing verbal tics. Spock would have to ask Cybok. Spock looked out the window at the Kirk house, at Jim in the window, watching him leave. I did. I thought it would be prudent to remove myself from the premise. The home of Frank Halley was not a prudent place to remove oneself to, Sarek pointed out. Spock kept his silence. Spock, the circumstances of my post have changed, and it's become possible for our family to relocate to Vulcan. After discussion, your mother and I agreed that it would be in your best interest to be exposed to Vulcan after such an extended absence. There was nothing to say to that, no logical argument to make, and certainly none that either of his parents would hear. When? he asked. 
when school concludes for this academic year. Finals started the following week.